morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 18, as we read verses 1 to 17. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year. And six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions, about words and names and your own law. See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, you show us in your word the ministry of your servant in a difficult place indeed. Even as we reflect on how hard the hearts of the Corinthians were, would you help us to see the hardness of our own hearts here this morning? And would you soften them by your spirit? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was a little kid, my parents decided they wanted to try gardening. Um, you have to understand the Parker family history with gardening. It's not very bright. We were Canadian fur trappers. My, my ancestors were. And they lived in Saskatchewan, Canada, uh, catching all sorts of rodents and selling the furs. And that's how they got by for several generations. And then finally, they decided... Maybe instead of fur trapping, we should be farming. And so they took to farming. And there are some months during the year when Saskatchewan is not so bad of a place. 
uh, but they quickly decided that it's still pretty tough to make things grow in Saskatchewan, Canada. And so then they decided, well, let's try going south. And they ended up in Colorado, which is also not a great place to try, to try growing crops and try farming. And so it turns out Kansas is actually a pretty good place to go if you like farming. And so they went to Kansas and they realized, my grandfather, uh, Bill Parker, uh, realized that farming not only is really hard, but you need a lot of land and a lot of money to actually make it worth it. And so instead of farming, he decided to sell equipment to farmers. And that's what, that's what my grandfather did. And that's actually in part what my father did too. Um, so we Parkers have a long history of trying to farm, trying to grow things. And that's exactly what my parents did when I was little. They decided to sort of, they picked the worst spot in the entire yard. You know how every yard, I think most yards have a really bad spot. This, it's dry, stuff doesn't grow there. Well, they looked at that spot and I think they said, if we could grow something there, then our whole yard would be green. So let's do it. Let's try and set up our garden in this spot. And so they picked the driest spot in the yard and they got... Um, I don't know what you would call it, but we got, it was a rototiller and they just dug up the ground and then they watered it and then they fertilized it. They just did really hard work trying to prepare this spot so that we could grow a real garden. And then they bought the plants and they bought the seeds and they got everything set out and, uh, and they did it and it started growing and it looked really good for a while, but then about halfway through the summer and you, you can probably relate to this. By the middle of the summer, the sun is just beating down in that one spot in the yard. And you say, oh, I know why that spot was always barren, and I know why nothing ever grew there. There's a little bit of a hill in the yard, and all the water would run away from that spot when it would rain. And not only that, but there was no shade around whatsoever, and so the sun would just relentlessly beat on this one spot. And the garden worked. Plants grew from it. We were able to eat, but it was constant hard work from the very beginning through the entire life of the garden. And from the minute Paul arrives in Corinth, his experience is like that. It's just constant, relentless, hard work, swimming against the stream, going uphill, uh, small returns, laborious effort, all to make this ministry in Corinth happen. And you can see that when even when you read his letters to Corinth, you see that even when he's not planting the church in Corinth anymore, it's still an uphill battle, just keeping this church on the right track. It seems like this place more than any other took dedicated, ongoing, constant work to make that spiritual garden in Corinth grow. And so this morning, let's do something, I think, very modest I hope very simple. Let's look at the hard soil of Corinth. Let's look at how God worked in Paul and how he protected Paul from discouragement and how he caused his church to grow even in this season of opposition. Because what we're going to see in this passage is that God grows his church by his sovereign hand and he does it in the midst of opposition. He doesn't do it by removing the opposition. So the first thing we see when Paul gets to Corinth is hard ground. That's our first point this morning, hard ground. Last week we were in Athens. We saw Paul's speech before the Areopagus, before Mars Hill. 
We saw the way that he defended the faith and a few people came to Jesus while he was there. And then Paul travels from Athens about 45 miles to Corinth. And Corinth is a prosperous city. It's a a place that was very well known in the ancient world as having rampant sexual immorality. That's one of the massive issues in Corinth. In the ancient world, there was this verb to Corinthianize. And when you said you were going to Corinthianize something, you meant you were going to corrupt your friend. You meant you were going to lead them down some path away from righteousness. And so, you know, imagine the kind of place that uh, somebody would have to live in to actually name a verb after that place and have it mean something so wretched. Well, that's where Paul says, I'm going to plant a church there. He picks the hardest spot in the yard to plant it in. He picks the driest, deadest spot and says, let's try planting a garden there. So Paul gets to Corinth and he finds this fellow Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They're Jewish people. But they're also believers in Jesus. And one of the things you see, even though we only get a sentence, we only get a sentence about their background. We actually find out that they are people who are well acquainted with suffering and they're well acquainted with challenges because they had been exiled from Rome. Now, we know this from history that in A.D. AD 49, Claudius kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome. And the reason Uh, was because the Jewish people were actually persecuting Christians. And you have to imagine from from a Roman perspective, you've got these Jewish people and they're all reading the Bible. And it, it almost looks to you like there's infighting between these two groups. So you have the Jewish people that believe in the Messiah. You have these Jewish people that don't believe in the Messiah. And the Jewish people who don't believe in the Messiah are persecuting the other people. And that's what, from Claudius' perspective, he looks in there and he sees this group being persecuted, including Aquila and Priscilla. And he doesn't say, hey, let's sort this out. He says, just kick them all out, get them out of here. And he kicks them out of the city. And he tells them they have to leave because they all look the same to him. They're all banned from Rome now, Christians and Jews. And when that happened, Priscilla and Aquila lost all their stuff. They lost their home. They lost this place they'd been building their lives. And so that brought them to Corinth. And so in worldly terms, you know, think about this. There's hardly anything worse than being forced out of your own home and being sent on the run. And that's exactly what their background is. Think of the suffering that it took to bring them to Corinth. And the truth is, God, the way God provides for our souls is often through affliction. Often he puts us through the ringer because he wants us to see the glory that's on the other side of it and we don't see it. And if you're going through the ringer right now, please understand that this is the way that God has dealt with his servants in the past. These people were exiled, but in their exile, look what God did. They found Paul, and they found this church, and they found this place where they were needed and where their ministry was needed. And sometimes God does do that. He uses those hardships to drive us to Jesus, to drive us closer in our need for him. Now, previously, think about Paul as he ministers here. He finds Priscilla, he finds Aquila, and then he goes to the synagogue. Now, usually, in fact, I think I'm confident in saying that every other time Paul has gone to the synagogue so far, he has preached, and he usually gets a fiery response from people, but he also gets 
some kind of positive response. Somebody responds. But think about what happens when he goes to the synagogue in Corinth. He gets nothing. Nothing. And then look at the work that he does before he gets the nothing. It says, uh, it said he spends weeks, multiple weeks, multiple Sabbaths coming in and, and explaining the text to them. And, and Calvin actually does a great job in his commentary talking about what Paul is doing here. And what Calvin says is, look what he's doing. He's laying the groundwork for Christianity, introducing them little by little to Christianity. Because notice he doesn't talk about Jesus until later. Instead, he's persuading them. And what Calvin suggests, and I think he's right about this, is he's, he's laying the groundwork. He's talking about their sin. He's talking about their need of a savior. He's showing from books like Leviticus that blood has to be shed for forgiveness to happen. And he's basically saying, look, we are people who need grace. We need the Messiah. He could even from the Old Testament explain there's a Messiah coming. He seems to know that this is hard ground. That he, that he has first principles that need to be put in place before he can openly name Jesus. So he's being very strategic here. But then what happens in verse 5? Silas and Timothy arrive and Luke describes Paul's ministry differently. He says now that they've arrived, Paul is testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So just understand this. Beforehand, he's preparing them to hear this word. He's preparing them to hear that Jesus is the Messiah. And now he says it. Paul builds on the work that he's already been doing. And the response that he gets is angry and violent. And and actually the Greek word here is blasphemous. As soon as they hear the name of Jesus, they respond with blasphemy. Think about how disheartening this would be for Paul. He is careful. He is methodical. He is thoughtful. And he's even winsome in how he tells this message to these people. You can't imagine a better way to sort of lay the groundwork for a people who aren't ready to hear the name of Jesus before you tell them his name. And yet he does all of this work, all of this preparation, all of this planning, and it seems to do no good. And sometimes I think as Christians, we need to learn that we can be as winsome, we can be as cautious as possible, but at the end of the day, that won't necessarily help us to be loved by the, by the world. Sometimes there just is no middle ground that at the end of the day, we can be faithful and the world can pat us on the back and tell us great job. We see this in Jesus' ministry, this idea that all the preparation, the best ministry we can do still can't wake up a cold heart. In Jesus, think about this. You have the greatest preacher that ever lived. You have the most winsome preacher that ever lived, the purest heart of any man who ever lived. And here he is. These people hear him preach. They hear words come out of his actual mouth. Uh, I remember years ago, I think there was a recording of Uh, I think it was the first recording of Thomas Edison speaking. And I remember listening to one of those cylinders and hearing what Thomas Edison sounded like speaking for the first time onto a recorded device and being amazed at what I was hearing. And I remember years ago, there was a recording of Charles Spurgeon's son 
and he read a passage from one of his father's sermons. And there was so much excitement in being able to hear, huh, perhaps this is basically what Charles Spurgeon sounded like. And I thought about the thrill that I, 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 I had listening to that. But imagine actually hearing the words come out of Jesus' mouth himself. The vocal cords shaking, the air moving. You actually hear with your own ears the words of Jesus. And can you believe this? That people heard Jesus preach the most perfect sermons that were ever preached. And they walked away and rejected it. So part of what I want to say is this. Don't be disheartened if you or your church proclaims a faithful gospel. But you find that the response is tepid. In the community around you. If people hear it. And just walk away or go somewhere. That that might be more willing to say things they want to hear. Don't be surprised at that. It happened to Jesus. See you can prepare. And you can be thoughtful. And you can try as hard as you can. And sometimes the response that you expect just doesn't come. So what does Paul do? Well. One thing he does is he says something very important, and it's very revealing to them. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. Paul has gone above and beyond here. I think about that phrase, your blood be on your own heads. It, it, it is almost implied here that if Paul had been in this place and refused to minister to them, then the blood would have been on Paul's head. In a sense, Paul is saying, my conscience is clear now. I've done what God requires of me. And the thing that leaves me wondering is, uh, is it possible we might get to the end of the day and find out that there are bl- the blood of people are on our heads because we kept silent? Is it possible there are people around us, neighbors around us, and their blood will be on our heads? And when we stand before the throne, God will say, you are forgiven. But just know that the blood of your neighbors was upon you. Because you didn't minister my word. You didn't tell people. And you perfectly well could have. Is it possible? Paul, though, can say this. Your blood be on your own heads. He says, I am innocent. Paul has gone above and beyond here. He has worked harder to prepare this hard ground for the gospel than we've seen so far at any other synagogue. And yet all he got in return was blasphemy. And insults. Not one follower came from his preaching in the synagogue. There's encouragement here for you. If you've ever had a bad experience sharing the gospel with somebody, if you've ever shared the gospel, you stepped out and you really took a chance, you and you ended up feeling like you got egg on your face. Because that's what happens here with Paul. He's got egg on his face. At least maybe he feels that way. He stepped out, but you know what? He doesn't blame himself. And once we're sure we've done all that we can, we should have the same attitude as well. Uh, If we've brought the gospel to someone and we've shared the gospel with them, then ultimately they are responsible for their own unbelief. That, That blood is on them. And we need that reminder, I think, to protect us from discouragement. Now, Paul does meet with with some success. Once he goes to the Gentiles in Corinth. And and the interesting thing is he says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he goes to the house right next door to the synagogue, which is owned by Gentiles. And he goes into their house. And who should hear the gospel but the guy who's the ruler of the synagogue? 
So it, as far as we could tell anyway, it looks like the first convert to his preaching is a Jew. But he wasn't converted until he turned to minister to the Gentiles. And his name is Crispus. And Crispus is interesting because this is the first time you see a family baptism. And it's the first one where the passage actually says the whole family believed. This is the first time that a whole family is baptized. And the text actually says every member of the household believed in Jesus. And so there's an encouragement here, too, because this is an instance where Paul actually tells us that it isn't just the head of the household who believes, uh, but it's also his whole household. And the encouragement here is this. The missionary John Patton went to the New Hebrides Islands, and it was years before he saw his first convert. And I think we sort of see that principle with John Patton's life and Paul's life. Because the principle here is that sometimes the thing that can discourage us the most is followed by the greatest thing that God intends to do. Think about the most discouraging thing that you've had happen this year. You probably don't even have to think about it. It's probably right there. You're probably thinking about it all the time. God has a history of following that act up with something great. And that's exactly what he does here. No sooner is Paul discouraged than he sees Crispus and he sees his family come to faith. And maybe you are in the midst of some serious discouragement. One thing that this passage shows us is that what's happening now is not an indicator of what will happen in the future. Today does not decide what tomorrow will be like because God is sovereign. He can do what he will. He can work his will however however it is. And our God is sovereign and he is good and he is full of surprises. And I would even suspect that he surprised Paul here. So we see the hard ground of Corinth in the beginning of our passage. But in verses 9 to 10, we see something else, which is gracious guidance. Gracious guidance. I, I think most of us would forgive Paul for being discouraged. This is a man who worked so hard, and yet he had anemic results. And God comes to Paul in a vision. And when God speaks to him, God seems to see something within Paul that we don't see. Something that we wouldn't even imagine Apostle Paul would experience. And the thing that God seems to see is fear. I really think the feeling of fear is something that we tend to be very ashamed of. Um, it's one of those emotions that we resist admitting to other people. Uh, I remember back when I was going to seminary, I, I had near the end of my seminary time, I had the closest thing I've ever had to a breakdown. And one night I, I finally was able to just verbalize it and just tell my wife, I am afraid. And when I did that, I felt two emotions at the same time. The first emotion I felt was shame. I'm not supposed to be afraid. The Bible says I'm not supposed to be afraid. And yet that's how I felt. And the second emotion I felt was relief. Because I really needed to just admit it. You know what? I am afraid. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what's going to happen. What's going to happen to our family? Where are we going to go? Paul 
feels fear here. God sees this in Paul. This is a guy who's just had a serious defeat, is feeling very discouraged, maybe even a little angry. He's seen a small success afterwards, but he's not getting a return on investment for the sort of work that he's putting into this situation. And in this moment, God needs to tell him something that will sustain him, something that will keep him from despair. And so he says to Paul, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. See, for God, the opposite of being afraid is for him to go on speaking and do not be silent. Paul needs to hear this and God knew it. God knew what Paul needed. To be honest, preaching can be a fearful thing. Um, You know, sometimes you'll say things that people don't want to hear. You know that in the pulpit... You're probably going to step on someone's toes. You can't be in a room with 80 people and say something and have it not just strike them the wrong way sometimes or the right way. So many preachers have a fear of man, and and I know that fear well. And someday, though, God may be gracious to you and cause you to be offended by something that was faithfully said from this pulpit. And, And when this happens, I want you to know this very clearly that I will never seek to needlessly offend you. But if you hear God's word faithfully spoken, you are bound to be forgive, uh, to be offended. You're bound to hear things you don't want to hear, things that make you feel like you're not on the right track. And when that happens, thank God, because it means that you're hearing his word. One of the worst curses on a congregation is a preacher who does nothing but deliver pleasant messages and make you feel great about yourself when you shouldn't. And that comes from a fear of man. And, but I also want you to know this. This is, you know, you are not preachers here. I, I, you're not pastors. This is not just a problem for preachers. The fear of man is something that everybody feels. Whatever line of work you're in, whether you are a housewife, whether you are uh, in, the, in the workplace 60, 70 hours a week, whether you're a nurse or a teacher or whatever you do, the fear of man is always potentially with you, especially if you want to be faithful as a Christian and living out those things. And you probably have people in your life that you need to tell them the truth, you need to share the gospel with them, and for you the temptation is to keep silent because what if I damage this relationship? What if I make things weird? And God's encouragement to you is do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. You've had setbacks even though you tried to explain the gospel. Don't let that make you afraid. You tried to tell someone about, someone about Jesus and they got upset and they treated you different after that. Don't be afraid. How does God steady Paul in this moment? He doesn't just give him a pep talk and say, hey, look up, buttercup. Uh, instead, he looks at Paul and he gives him substance He says, do not be afraid. And he gives three reasons not to be afraid. First, he says, do not be afraid for I am with you. God builds this man first and foremost with his presence. He fortifies him with his presence. This is the main way that God ministers to his people in the Old Testament. God is absolutely convinced that there is comfort in his presence. Think about this. 
how, how consistently he does this. Jeremiah 46, 28. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for, because, for, I am with you. Jeremiah 42, 11. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, for I am with you. Isaiah 43, 5. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Over and over again, God says, the cure for fear is my presence. And if you put your trust in me, you have it. And I could have quoted a hundred more verses just like these. Christian, if you find yourself fearful... If you find yourself timid, if you find yourself nervous or anxious, God is calling you to remember his presence. He's with you. You're going through the waters. He goes through the waters with you. You have his presence. Second reason, the second reason he tells him not to be afraid. He says, do not be afraid, but go on preaching for no one will attack you to harm you. It's a second argument that God makes. By the way, God could have just said, don't be afraid and don't be afraid because I'm God and I said so. (laughs) And instead, he knows. He knows that we need reasons. He knows that we need the arguments. He makes the argument to Paul here. So his second reason, he says, don't be afraid for no one will attack you to harm you. Here's, Here's what God is telling Paul. He's saying, you may be persecuted. You may even be physically attacked, but they can't harm you. They can't harm you. Look, God isn't telling Paul nobody's ever going to attack him again because two verses later, what happens? The text says the Jews made a united attack on Paul. Okay, so this is not a promise that he won't know a physical threat. The promise is they may attack you, but they cannot harm you. What could that mean? It means just what Christ said in Matthew 10, 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. These people can mess your body up pretty bad. They could even kill you, but they can't destroy you. We need reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? Uh, Maybe we're not afraid of persecution, but maybe, you know, health scares. Maybe you know health worries. Maybe you're afraid of any number of health problems that you, you could get or even that you actually do have. Maybe that's a source of fear for you. God gives you a very precious reminder and a precious perspective here. Disease may attack you, but it cannot harm you. Stuff might happen to your body. Your soul is untouchable. Don't fear even disease. It can't destroy your soul. Third, God gives one more reason why Paul shouldn't be afraid. He says, do not be afraid for I have many in this city who are my people. The final way that God fortifies Paul 
and steals away his fear is by reminding him that there is something imminently practical about the doctrine of election. God tells Paul something that we often need to hear. God has chosen people in this city for salvation and you have no idea who they are. You ever consider that there are people in this city that God has, but they need to hear the gospel first? You ever wonder how many people living even just in the circumference of the area around our church that God has, but they need to hear the word first? They need to hear the message of salvation. They need to hear about Jesus. Or have you given up on this city? Have you just given up on Pearl? Have you just decided, well, look, everyone in this city who's ever going to come to Jesus has already come to to Jesus. Our work is done. This is a city, the majority of which does not regularly attend Sunday worship, Bible Belt or not. This is a city of people who are not believers. And I guarantee you God's word to Paul and is his word to us as well. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. For I have many in this city who are my people. Why would that strip us of fear? Why would we not be afraid if we know that? Because when we share the gospel, we never know when we might see the very person we're talking to translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and through nothing of our own contribution. All we did was say the thing we were commanded to say. We're like Jonah. We could, God could use this. Jonah walks into Nineveh and he says, uh, in a few days, this place is going to be destroyed. And then he turns around and he walks away. The most half-hearted gospel presentation anyone's ever heard. And the city has a meltdown. And they repent. It should strip us of fear to know that if God has someone, when we speak the word to them, he will change their heart in an instant. Through no contribution of our own. All we did was reluctantly, maybe, say the words. Jesus is Lord. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That's the gospel message. We could share that word with somebody and God could change somebody's heart. Now, I hope we're more winsome than that. I hope we put a little more heart into it than that. But isn't it encouraging to know that we could even be a bad evangelist and see results? Because our God is sovereign. He has people in this city. You ever consider that it's such a high priority in the Bible From God's perspective, that we be stripped of fear. How many times he tells his people, do not fear, do not be afraid. You would think that it is the most high priority command in scripture as many times as he says it. Do you ever think about how important it is to God that we not be afraid? God knows our fear will keep us from doing our mission. He knows that our fear will keep us from stepping out. He says so in the passage. He knows that fear is going to keep Paul from ministering. That's why he tells him, don't be afraid. Go on preaching. Fear will keep us from serving. Fear will prevent the church from fulfilling its calling to take the gospel to the city where we find ourselves. The passage ends, of course, with more persecution. Poor Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, is beaten before an indifferent government. 
And just as quickly as God reminds us of his presence and of his purpose and of the work he has us to do, he also reminds us that his church is not built up by pleasant weather, peace, and sunshine. No, God builds his church while the waves beat against it. While the waves shake it and the lightning strikes and the storm torments and the winds blow. That's the way that the church grows. And he reminds us this morning that Jesus built his church in the midst of opposition by his sovereign hand. And that in all of it, we must not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Let's pray. Lord, we know that much like Paul, we can be afraid. Even your greatest servants know the temptation to fear and tremble in the face of opposition. Lord, would you encourage us whenever the storms, whatever the storms we face, whatever the challenges that we're dealing with, will you remind us that you are with us, that we cannot ultimately be harmed and that you have a purpose that you are working out, even if we don't see it. Would you give us that knowledge? Would you give us that encouragement today? Because we do frequently and easily forget it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.